there, it's Vicki Howell, and this is the Craftish Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Penguin Random House Audio, who always has our ears and our entertainment back when it comes to books that we want to read and maybe intend to read, but don't necessarily have time to read with our own eyes. So they have created a whole curated list for makers like us, which you can find at tryaudiobooks.com crafter, or you can look around for the non-curated stuff and find your own books your own way. You do you. But while you're there, you might as well download a free book. They are offering Ivy and Inky the Butterfly by Johanna Bosford, who is a fellow maker, and she has created sort of this wondrous tale that's great for all ages. So check it out, as well as all of their other amazing titles at tryaudiobooks.com slash crafter. This week's conversation is with founder of Knit Collage, Amy Small. We focused our chat on the work that she's done to build a sustainable structure of employment for a co-op of women in India who produce the uniquely gorgeous hand-spun yarns that Amy's company is known for. Amy's heart and talents know no bounds, and I'm truly honored to call her a friend. So this interview is actually the audio for what would later become adapted to be a feature on Amy and her co-op for the community chapter of my forthcoming book, The Knit Vibe, A Knitter's Guide to Creativity, Community, and Well-Being for the Mind, Body, and Soul. Since it's International Women's Month, even though this book doesn't come out until October, it just felt like the right time to highlight Amy's work. So let's hear it now. So you started as a sweater designer for free people, correct? Yes, that's kind of how it all got started. My old boss, who I'm still really close with, um, she started being really inspired by hand-spun yarns. And that's when I realized that there was this whole world of art yarns and beautiful things you could make on a spinning wheel um, exactly as you wanted that weren't sort of machine-made commercial yarns. And that really, I kind of fell down the rabbit hole from there. Um, while I was working at Free People, I learned how to spin, and it, it started to become a bigger and bigger hobby for me. Wait, uh, did, did they teach you how to spin there, or this was a side hobby that you wanted? Side hobby, but okay. very much inspired by um, being introduced to it by my work there. So that's kind of, would you mind talking a little bit more about that though? Because I think, I don't think that people think of free people as being like every other corporation. You don't think of being inspired by spinning wheels. Oh, it was, it was amazing. Um, it really was like having my dream job out of college and it still is. I know it's still that way today because I have many friends that still work there. And I was just given so many opportunities to learn at different factories all over the world and travel. And yeah, I was making, I was designing sweaters. It was just me and one other lady. And right from the beginning, I was kind of like put to work and had to come up with designs and it was a lot of fun. So the sweaters that I specialized in were, we always called them like kitchen sink sweaters because they had Mm. a lot of things going on. Like I love that description. That's fantastic. (laughs) You know, like a 
colorwork sweater with beading, with embroidery on top, and then pieced with a different placket and, you know, cuffs or something. So like you, you, you would think of a free people type sweater. Um, and they were a really big portion of the business at that time. So it was really fun, but the other teams at free people didn't travel as much and they were bigger. Whereas our team, it was just us and we travel a lot. And what, what do you think that is that you got to travel so much more? Really my boss, her take was that, um, she could create and design the best work at the factories because you know, with yarn, you're creating your own fabric and so much can change, right? Like the gauge or the stitch or, um, if it's color work, a stripe, whatever, um, you can actually design so much better things when you're there, when you're able to experiment, um, rather than from your desk. I think that was sort of the way she worked and she still does. She's in India, um, about half the year, probably a little bit more at this point. Um, and still designs that way. So it's, it's really cool, but it's very different from fabric where you're locked into that fabric and you got to make something from that, you know, um, make it work. (laughs) You know what I kind of love about this too, is that so very often in the knitting industry, traveling like that would almost seem frivolous. And I love that in a fashion industry, that the craft of it, the same thing that is often looked down upon, you know, in the fashion, you know, the runway fashion portion of the industry was actually really nurtured, like to go and be an artisan and really make these beautiful things as a knitter. Yeah. And I think it was good for everyone because when you're able to spend time with the people who make it, or in this case, it was more like the people managing the people that make it, but it just, they'll prioritize your work because they know you right, and, right. and kind of go through hoops to make it work. And especially it's just if good they, business. Yeah. Especially yeah. if they've seen that it, it results in sales and all of that too, which it di- it definitely did for my boss, Mary. So it was a, it was an amazing experience. And so she was in charge and she still is of the free people interiors of the stores and the display and uh, fixtures. And so she would make, she made those in India. And what she would do is she would like drop me at the, at the factory in India and I would stay there and like design stuff while she would go back and do the furniture work um, oh, wow. meet up later. So it was, I mean, it was cr- kind of crazy because I had, I had been to Paris once before I went to India, but not really, um, you know, I hadn't really left the country before that experience. So it was wow. a really cool learning experience and I'm so grateful. And those those huge installation pieces that she did, many an Instagram photo, at least oh, on my personal yes. feed, has been taken yes. um, for those. That's that's amazing. Okay, there, so you work. So you yeah. so she took you to India, and I'm assuming that's where you sort of fell in love with the artisans or with the culture or. Definitely the culture, because what ended up happening was we stopped making sweaters in India. So I, and that was a quality control problem. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there are better places you can make them, but for whatever reason, where we were making them, they had a lot of issues. So we ended up just switching to China. Um, And around this time, I asked to move to Hong Kong, which was really fun and awesome. Um, But I was the job was really in China. So I was most of the weeks in China. And then on the weekends, I would go back to Hong Kong. Um, So that's kind of how my business evolved. At some point, I got 
sick of being in China at these factories that it's just, it's, it is very different than going to factories in India. And the towns in China, at least that I went to, um, were kind of devoid of a lot of, um, enthusiasm or life. I don't even know how to explain it, but it wasn't a place where creativity felt very nurtured, at least for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and to spend such extensive times there, it kind of um, lost the appeal. So at some point I decided to go freelance as a letter designer. Let me ask you sort of a side note question. When people think of poor factory conditions, they think of two places, especially India and China. You have been in both. Can you, is there, is there, is there, is it possible for you to talk about your experiences there? Yeah, definitely. Um, in the factories we were in, they were always very nice and good places. And I always felt like no one was being abused or, you know, the conditions were very good. And and the level of craftsmanship was, especially the ones in China, was just so stellar that it really was not... Um, kind of like menial labor jobs. I mean, when you work a linking machine, that's like a serious skill. Um, is that the, is that what they call the machines that like knitting machines? Um, no. So if you have finished knitted panels, the linking machine is what actually um, seams the panels together. So around an armhole or even oh. if you're attaching like a, like for sweaters, it would be maybe like an eye cord. You do an applied eye cord right. edge or something like that. That's all done by hand. And that labor is actually becoming increasingly hard to find because it's such a detailed skill. It's basically you take the knitted pieces and it's all live loops, right? Like live right. stitches. Right. And then you put it needle by needle. And some of these are like crazy, you know, fine gauge sweaters sure, <laughs> all sure. into one of those linking machines and you can't miss a stitch. Right. And then you put the next piece on top perfectly lined up and then you stitch it across to seam it all up. So it's pretty nice. Wow. Wow. So it, <clears throat> it's kind of like a sewing machine and a knitting machine yeah. together. Like yes. mixed together. It's a portmanteau. Of, yeah. Wow, that's so interesting. I've all, you know, I've never really considered about the assembly of machine knitted yeah. pieces. I think everything's going more towards computer, and I'm not sure how that plays into it. But uh, in a lot of like cheaper fast fashion stores, you'll go into and you see sweaters. They're probably cut and so, and you can tell that by the serger seam, you know. Right. But if it's linked, you'll see it's just like one needle in or one row in. You can totally tell the difference, um, and that that will make it more expensive and a better quality piece because it will also stretch, whereas the you know sergered seam doesn't have much give. Right. Right. And so, Uh-oh. and so, you're working in a higher quality factory yeah. then is what I'm surmising from this. Okay. I do think in China, like I would, like there, there is a, definitely a practice of subcontracting. That was one thing that when I freelanced, not at urban, but when I freelanced, um, for smaller companies, you wouldn't necessarily know where your work was being made. And that's the, I think this the kind of doozy part of it. Um, which I've never come across in India. You, you just you just said urban. Is that because they're owned by the same people? Yeah, Free People is owned by Urban Outfitters. Okay, actually. So, okay. Um, 
Yeah. So I, but I don't know. It's been so long since I've been back in China. I think I quit my Urban Outfitters job in 2008. So it's pretty long, long time ago. Right. Right. Um, but you met your husband while you were out there. Yes. So it was all worth it. Well, worth it for so many reasons, but wow. definitely one of the big reasons. Who is also, who is not Chinese either? No, Texan. <laughs> <laughs> you. <laughs> Oh, funny. He's got his sights set on Austin big time. <laughs> I we are so ready. I mean, I'm gonna start I'm gonna start texting you pictures of the house. Although you just bought this beautiful house. I mean I that house is like perfection. It's so funny because so many people have said to us, um, wait, I thought you were moving <laughs> to Austin and I don't know. I, I mean you I were kind of starting that rumor. Yeah, I know. I know. I don't know what I don't know what's gonna happen now. I'm kinda like this house is so good. I can't imagine leaving, but um, but Austin is definitely calling our heart, like our hearts, in so many ways. It's just the best. It's so cool there. So, um, yeah. Okay, so, so I guess let's. After- so you decided that you wanted to go freelance, and what is yeah. that? What does that look like for you? Does that mean that you try to get some startup money from somewhere? Does that mean that you put together a collection and start, you know, schlepping it? What What does that look like for you? And what country are you in at this point? Yeah, so I was in Hong Kong, and I really okay. wanted to stay in Hong Kong because I felt like I didn't have the experience of living there with so much back and forth to China. And I had met great friends, and I was just wanting an adventure. I was like, I think in my mid, mid twenties. Um, and so what I did is I got, I think I had around seven or eight freelance contracts that they paid me monthly. And some of them were U S companies and some of them were actually factories that paid me to design a line for them. And they sort of saw it as a way to get a Western design eye to um, produce designs for them, kind of keep them abreast of trends. And then they would go on and sell that line to their customers. So I worked for this one big factory that pr- makes sweaters for everybody you can possibly imagine, um, like J. Crew and, you know, everybody. So yeah. increasingly, I think factories are designing their own lines to do that kind of work where you're seeing not as much come from the designer stateside. So kind of crazy, but that's sort of in a nutshell what I was doing. And in the back of my head, I thought, well, I'm going to start try this yarn thing on the side. And I'll never forget my parents um, had a, my parents had a friend that owned a yarn store in Rhode Island. I emailed her and she said, you should go to the TNNA. And that is kind of how my business got started. But at that point, I had no idea really how I was going to make them on a larger scale. Um, make yarns or make sweaters? Make yarns. So you had samples. So at this point, you you yeah. found you kind of found the type of yarns that you wanted to see and weren't seeing out in the marketplace. And you made them yourself. Yes, I made the first, I, I, I don't know who was eight or 10 um, styles. And that was the gypsy garden yarn. So I had my first designs and oh, the, the current you still have that. Yeah, we still, oh, sell, wow. it. We still sell it. Yeah, and so that's really those- rare. <laughs> that's that's interesting to hear. Yeah. So a lot no, of those- I mean, for a yarn that you kick off, especially because it's not a classic yarn. Mm. It's not like a mainstay staple. That's for true. It, for it to a- have that kind of longevity. 
I mean, it is kind of for you, but, but, but not in, you know, not in the, that's the not, general. That's a scheme. funny thing to think about. That that's like my my normal life. <laughs> I mean, it kind of is. Um, yeah. So I started with those yarns, and I. I realized I had to figure out a way to make them. And what I did, this is before India, is I started recruiting um, Hong Kong women to spin them for me. So So what does that look like? Like you're on the street? With yeah, kind of. Well, I had this really cool studio and I had, I ha- actually had a lot of freelance work. So I had an assistant who was Chinese speaking, helping me with the freelance work. And she helped me put a sign up on my studio door, which was in a pretty central location. And we had a lot of, we had a few people respond and then they had friends and family kind of is what happened. And it was really a great learning experience for me because I was right there. My desk was right next to them and I was able to, um, work out all the kinks of the process really. So that was really valuable. And we went on that way for some time, maybe, um, I think I started the business at the TNNA in January and I can't quite remember the year. I think it was 2010. And I, shifted everything to India by the following September, if that makes sense. So what was, what made the, what helped you make the decision to move the company to a different country? There were a lot of things. Um, I love India and I really wanted an excuse to travel there and to support, um, women and craft there. And I knew it was going to be an amazing place for us to make the yarn because they are so good at handwork. And in China and other places where I have been, where they, you know, mass produce things, it's like they basically, they'll do something by hand and it'll look like a machine. Like I wanted everything to look like it was made by hand and be a little bit different. And that was kind of the problem with the sweater production when we were in India, but really that's what I wanted in the yarn. I didn't want it to look like cookie cutter. Um, and I just knew it's, it's a really beautiful place because I think in a lot of ways, the attitude and the culture is similar to Americans. Everybody works really hard. Um, but they also have uh, this attitude, which is like a, yes, we can do that. Yeah, we'll figure it out and do that. And something about that I thought would be a great fit for what I was trying to do because it, there were so many colors and so many trims involved. And I knew it was going to be really difficult to pull off. Um, and I think also because I had contacts and experience in India, I felt comfortable um, going there. And that was a huge part of it, too. I, I really wasn't sure where to make it, um, at that point. And kind of the stars just aligned where I had my old boss who I told you about, um, lives there like half the year. So I was able to go and stay with her for a lot of the time while I was setting up my business. And she gave me tons of advice. And in the end, I ended up partnering with a woman who I used to work with when I was at Urban and she ultimately helped me find all the ladies, figure out where to get the different trims, and now manages it all for me. And I did look at a lot of different places in India before I decided on working with someone I already knew, but I just didn't have like that level of trust of, of you know, past experience. And 
And so that kind of won the won the day for me, and it's been good. It's been a really good uh, thing so far. Knock on wood. <laughs> so talk about some of the reasons uh, that you shared with me before, but about why it was important to you to sort of cultivate this this co-op in particular. And I would love for you to tell the story again of how you taught them how to spin. Yeah, as well. yeah, definitely. Well, one thing that was very apparent when I was in India making sweaters was that you, you wouldn't ever see women um, in sweater factories. And a lot of that was due to the fact that um, they were viewed as unreliable labor sources because they have children um, and might be out um, a lot and taking care of the house or whatever. And so that was always really important to me to find um, to find women and be able to support women who who want work. And it's pretty incredible. We have 13 ladies and all but one of them has been working with us since the very beginning. And we have a mother, daughter, grandmother team. So the lady who is like came in a little later is the daughter. She's the youngest, if that makes sense. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And I can totally send you pictures from my last trip because it was a really, it was a really, really great trip this last one. And, and they're just great friends now after, I guess, eight years, um, you know, working together, they hop into a, like, like one rickshaw. They, they share one rickshaw, all of these women, which is like normally two or three people should go in. It's hysterical. And I might even have those videos of them all getting into them and they all go home together. They live near each other. And it's just, it's really fun where I feel like at this point, their skills have gone far and above my skills. I did teach them in the beginning the basic techniques, but now the way they spin the yarns is so much more consistent and, um, yeah, beautiful than even what I do. So that's also the fun of like going on my trips there is that I might have an idea, but then they make a sample that looks different, but it's even cooler than what mm-hmm. I had in mind, you know? Um, so... How, yeah. of, how often do you go back? I go about two times a year. The, the having baby things, that, that slowed me down, but I've been, it was twice this year and I'm going again in a couple weeks. So, Oh, I'm really? Is that because you want to just check in or do you do more design there? or? Yeah, basically for design. So this will be fall designs. and So you design really- your seasons there? Yeah, I I try and get as much going as I can before I get there. But it's, you know, it's expensive to send boxes back and forth and for the cost of a flight. And once I get there, it's really cheap. I actually stay with the manager that I told you about. Um, It's like I can design and approve things so much faster, approve all the labels, just get the ball rolling. And um, I think you know, I work alone. So it's great for me to just get invigorated and be like, this is why I'm doing this or, you know, a huge part of it. And I think for the women too. So it kind of goes both ways. And yeah, so that's the main point of the trip. I have my big fall shipment leaves in the summer to arrive by fall. So April's a great time to go and really finalize all those details and make sure everything looks good. What does that process look like? Do you show up? A lot of your yarns have 
some kind of little bit of special in it, whether it's a trim or a little bit of metallic or, you know, it might be some little flower or something. Are you, are you finding those and traveling with them? Are you, do they have... Do they, you show up and they just have piles of stuff for you to choose from? How does that look like? Um, it's kind of both. So in Delhi, uh, where I usually fly into, there's this crazy trim market, which is like, it's for, it's like a wholesale trim market, but it's also for the wedding industry. So I'm sure you have an idea of what like Indian weddings look like. Like, it's just crazy. Yeah. <laughs> like doodads and sparkle and, and like, it's just amazing. So Usually what I do is at the beginning of my trip, I'll go there. Um, and this is how some of the first yarns evolved as I'll source trims and bring them back. And what we try to do is actually have the ladies make them if they can. If they can't, we'll get them from this market wholesale. But um, m- many of the things they make, you'd be amazed. Like there's tiny fringe trims that we make all of those. Um, oh, you're making the, oh. Yeah. I, so, so out of the 13 ladies, like four of them will crochet tiny flowers. Um, they actually braid, like there's one yarn that has a braided trim in it. Like there's all these different handmade elements that we figured out it's easier if we can produce those ourselves too. But how uh, many of those do you can you possibly produce? Because I'm, I'm assuming there's several per hank. That's sort of the beauty of working in India. You're not like limited to, um, huge minimums. Um, and yeah, there, there are a lot, but it's not as crazy as you would think. Like when I go, it's not like piles and piles of trips everywhere. And probably that's counterbalanced by the fact that, um, you know, we have a lot of yarns without trims now too. So, no, I mean, I'm I'm imagining your co-op like hand crocheting flowers and then hand sewing them onto every single hank. Oh, they, those are actually spun into the yarn. So, the way that the process sort of works for the, the yarn and how it's made is, um, we'll have a few of these ladies for, let's say, for Gypsy Garden, that first yarn I told you about, where they are. Um, it has a lot of different ribbons and trims in it. So, the ladies that make the trims or they cut the ribbons, they will be working on that and they'll create like a little packet of trims for each skein. So that's a set recipe. And then on the other side, we have a few women who are actually weighing out the different fiber colors. So we have like over 50 different fiber colors of wool that we use in different, um, you know, variations to create each color skein. So they actually go and they have a recipe and they measure out and weigh how much of each color goes into each skein. And then they give it to the carter who hand cards. So we have two ladies who just hand card the yarn to make it into super colorful, fluffy fiber bats, which is one of my favorite parts about hand spinning because when you card by hand, you are not limited to any set number of colors. Like some of the most popular yarns like Prism Castaway, I think there's 12 different fiber colors in there. So it really looks rainbow mm-hmm. and pretty. So so that's what happens. But if it's Gypsy Garden, it gets carded through that machine. And then the fiber and the trims are given to the spinners. And I think there's only actually six or seven ladies who spin. And those ladies have 
you know, they, on one side they have their fiber, on the other side they have their trims, and they just um, spin them all together. So all the ribbons are spun into the yarn, and all the trims with like the crochet flowers are actually threaded onto thread, and the thread is what gets spun into the yarn. If that makes sense. Um, Fascinating. So, yeah. And I mean, they're fast at it now too, which is crazy, (laughs) but that's how it works. And then after that, we steam it or we um, wash it kind of like blocking process. And then it's checked for quality and put a label on and packed up. So in a nutshell. (laughs) Is that all done in in one room? In one room. Do you have a except warehouse? Except for the washing. Yeah, except for the washing, it's pretty much all done right there. Yeah, it's like a big room, and it's it's pretty funny. All the trims are kept under lock and key because they're worried people will steal them. I mean, <laughs> as a fellow trim lover. I just always I find that it. so ridiculous because it's like little sequins, and, you know, it's just little doodads, so it's pretty funny. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's India, so it's, you know, to our standards, it's dirty. I think that's something, after traveling there for a while, you kind of get used to. Like, you you could sweep every hour, and then the floor would be covered with dust. I don't know where it all comes from, but it's like white yarn, very difficult in India. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, that's kind of, in a nutshell, how it works. Um it's, they're really efficient now. They've been doing it for so long and yeah, that's kind of how it works. (laughs) Do you ever just sit back and think, I mean, that's, that's not your average, your average blondie story. Let me tell you. (laughs) Well, I think, you know, I'm teasing about the blondie, but you know what I'm saying? Like just to, just that's not the average American story would have been a better way to put it. That's really kind of you. I, I'm not one to, and and probably this is a flaw, to like really applaud myself much. I'm always thinking about the next thing, you know, Um, like, like, how am I going to make this even better? How am I going to make sure I can keep selling enough yarn to support everybody? Um, I think we're at a point where I don't, I don't really have ambitions of adding more people, but I want to make sure I can still um, maintain the orders we have been having so it's I'm not good at just kind of resting and like giving myself a pat on the back (laughs) what what's next for Nick Clash so something I'm really excited to work on while I'm there is um we're starting to do like some dyeing in addition to the spinning so right now I'm working on this like chiffon fabric yarn similar to the cotton fabric yarn Uh we have that we're tie-dyeing and hand-painting and we're trying to figure that out so that I'm really excited about and then I have a couple other kind of crazy yarns that are in the work for fall that are I don't know if you've seen Stephen West has been knitting with a lot of eyelash yarns and I'm digging it I don't know if you're into that yet I mean I was into it the first time I came around (laughs) I'm gonna I'm gonna send you some I have the most beautiful eyelash yarn it's not it's not hand spun obviously but it's like it's actually like from my old boss and they're, they make it in free people sweaters. So I found the source of it and we're going to basically take that yarn and like knit collage it in some way. Um, so you I'm have really to add like nubbins to it or something. Yeah. Something. Yeah. Like, like almost really make it look like, uh, <laughs> like the paper, 
paper beads, but then with the fur in it, like with the yeah. fun fur in it? I, I don't know. Like, I'm just, I'm kind of, I have a lot of ideas for fall. I know we're going to do a couple more, like, colors. Like, you know, I'm really into mustard, so I'm adding in some mustard. Oh, and You know how excited that makes me, too. Yeah, I'm really excited, too. So, like, I've definitely got all those, you know, some new colors and some of our favorite yarns added. Um, and then a few more colors of the mini skein sampler kits, which have done really well for us. Um, and then the other yarn I'm working on is, so there's obviously in India, there's a lot of, um, factory waste of, you know, discarded yarns and fabrics and things. So I have this idea for this yarn that is basically made out of like, like discarded things. And it's going to be, uh, a, a, a mashup of like some of our things that we haven't used that are lying around and then what we can find in the market. So I'm excited to kind of work on that too. And that has been really inspired by my friend, Christina, who I had on the podcast a while ago. She was my friend from Hong Kong and she is designing like this amazing line for Barney's and all these stores out of like trash yarns. It's so cool. Really? <laughs> You would lo like you would love her if you ever want to, um, you know, know more about her. I, I think she would be an amazing guest for your podcast too. For more information on Amy Small and Knit Collage, go to her show notes page at vickihowell.com/craftish. You can also read her interview pretty soon um, when my new book, The Knit Vibe, comes out, but it's actually for pre-sale right now. So you can see that interview and there's some great photographs along with a bunch of other good stuff if you go over to Amazon and pre-order The Knit Vibe. Okay, now it is time for what I'm crafting-ish to. This is a segment brought to you in partnership with Penguin Random House Audio. It's just where I share what is entertaining me while I am making and working and living this week. So for TV, I binge watch Russian Doll, which is um, a Netflix series. It's only about four hours in total. It's eight 30-minute episodes. It's starring Natasha Leon, and it was created by her and Amy Poehler. And, it's, and if you're a fan of Natasha's at all, it is pretty much the perfect vehicle for all of her talents. I really enjoyed it. If you like dark and a little strange, um, try out Russian Doll on Netflix. Music-wise, I just got back from South by Southwest. Um, um, I did a quick take from that if, uh, so you can check your feed if you're interested in hearing a little bit about that in an interview I did with the head of marketing for Blueprint. But as part of that, I'm still sort of in the music zone. And so I've been listening to the NPR South by Southwest Austin 100 playlist, which NPR put together featuring song selections from just some of the bands that played at last week's festival. So you can find that at NPR or wherever you find your music. They've created playlists and sort of spread it out evenly. So it's pretty easy to find. All right. Audiobooks. I am so excited. Okay. So I'm not technically listening to one right now, but I was perusing tryaudiobooks.com as I am one to do. And I came across one that's available for pre-order that I am super stoked about. Margaret Atwood has now written the sequel to The Handmaid's Tale. That's right. It's called The Testaments and it comes out September of this year, but you can pre-order it now. And this one picks up 15 years after Offred closes those van doors at the end of their original. And here's what the author, Margaret Atwood, has to say about this book. All right, dear readers, everything you've asked me about Gilead and its inner workings is the inspiration for this book. 
well, almost everything. The other inspiration is the world we've been living in. Oh my gosh, I'm beside myself. I can't wait. So you can go to tryaudiobooks.com to pre-order that and also check out a litany of other amazing titles. Craftish is produced in Austin, Texas by me, Vicki Howell, and mixed and edited by Dave Campbell. Music is provided by Explosions in the Sky. If you like this episode, please take a moment to share it with a friend and give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us be found and be able to produce more podcast episodes. Hey, here's a topic. Knitters, crocheters, do you know any? Well, if you do and they could use little bits of yarny happiness delivered to their doorstep, please tell them about my business, Yarnier. They, it is lovingly curated subscription boxes with the busy crafter in mind. And right now the first spring box of the year is available. It's a $54 value for only $35. And I have a limited amount still left. So grab yours while they last at yarnyay.com. That's yarn and then yay.com. All right, that's it for today. Be sure to refresh your feed next Thursday for the next new episode of Craftish with Satsuma Street founder Jody Rice. Until then, breathe in, craft out. <laughs>